Without further ado, I'd like to welcome those of you watching online right now from coast to coast and across the Fruited Plains. My name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if God puts it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. Why don't we just pray right now? Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for saving us. We thank you for rescuing us. Lord, we, um, we think of the persecuted church right now. Leah Sherabu being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria. Pastor Yusuf imprisoned in Iran. Pastor Wang and John imprisoned in China. For the Christians, Lord, in North Korea, in Afghanistan, in the South Sudan, Somalia, Eritrea, some of the most difficult places in the world to be a Christian. And we, as the author of Hebrews instructs us, we remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them. God, please help them. And Lord, for our leaders, we think of the president. Lord, for President Biden, I pray for a special grace upon his life. I pray that you would protect him, watch over him. I pray that you'd protect his mental faculties. I pray that you'd instruct him and help him to make good and wise decisions. Lord, we think of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, those serving both at home and abroad. We pray for their safety. We pray for their protection. And we pray for their salvation, Lord, because so many of those guys, they don't know you, they don't love you, and they're not walking with you, Lord. And Lord, today, as I preach, keep me from error. Lord, help me, Lord, not to say anything you don't want me to say. In fact, Lord, if there's something that I plan on saying today that you don't want me to say, don't let me say it. And if there's something I need to say today, Lord, that I haven't even considered saying, then I, then I pray you'd give me a word. I pray for a fresh filling of the Spirit in my life. I pray, Lord, for those watching and listening right now, that you would just push whatever distractions away. That we would hear from you right now. We, we want to hear from you, Jesus. So guide us and instruct us during this time. In your name we pray, amen. So we are going through the gospel, uh, John's gospel, John the Evangelist's gospel, and this is the fourth sermon that I will be preaching. I've said this for the last several weeks, the first chapter is very dense, it's very rich. In fact, we will not make it out of the first chapter today. Next week we will, though. It'll take five sermons to get through chapter one, but today it does turn into narrative, which I know some people are excited. Uh, it reads a little bit easier, but here's the bottom line up front. Here, bottom line up front. For today's text, John the Baptist is a humble servant who knows God and is known by God. And there are two key words that will no doubt be illuminated by the text today, and that is humility and to know, or humility and knowing. And when, when we speak of humility, it isn't exactly a virtue in today's society. It's, it's not something that people typically aspire to attain. It's, it's just not. Not to mention, when it comes to knowing God, it seems people would rather invent their own version of God than take the time to know what he has revealed to us in Scripture about himself. So, let's jump into it. John chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John... 
John the Baptist, not John the Evangelist who's writing this. This is the testimony of John the Baptist when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And that word testimony in verse 19, that's one of John's favorite terms. In fact, that the word testimony and the related terms to testify, he uses that term over 75 times in his writings. He loves using that phrase. And the reason for the testimony is because well, the, the Jews want answers. And, and to be clear, when he says Jews here in verse 19, he's not talking about like all Jewish people. He, he's really specifically referring as it's applied to the religious authorities, particularly those in Jerusalem, particularly those who really are hostile to Christ. And so here's what's happening. The Jewish leaders are curious. And they're probably a little concerned. There's this guy, John the Baptist, and he is becoming one of the most popular people in town. And his popularity, it, it just is not slowing down. And, and some are beginning to wonder, maybe, maybe he might be the Messiah. We know that from Luke chapter 3.15. And, and so this is the perspective of the Jewish leaders. And that is, this is something they, they want to get to the bottom of. They want to figure this out because for them, it holds the possibility of potentially enriching their lives. If John is some type of big deal, and yet, on the other hand, there's the possibility that this guy, John the Baptist, could create a rather volatile situation with his popularity, and, and that could be dangerous. You see, that was always a concern for the Jewish leaders. Their, their, their concern is always about, hmm, what type of environmental or political situation might impact their hold on power? They had this constant fear. They have this constant fear of the Jewish people rebelling against the Romans because if the Jewish people rebel against the Romans, then they could say goodbye to all their power and all their esteem and all their influence. That's what this is about. That's what's motivating them here. They want to maintain the status quo. They don't want to rock the boat. And so they send this delegation to investigate this new kid on the block, John the Baptist. And as verse 19 notes, the delegation was comprised of priests and Levites, at least some who were Pharisees. And when it comes to the priest, these would have been the religious experts. These would have been the ones that would conduct the religious ceremonies. They were the theological experts. They would have also served in the temple. And I thought this was really interesting because you've got priests all over Israel. So it's like, okay, so who actually gets to serve in the temple? Well, they would actually have two weeks of annual training. I'm borrowing kind of military vernacular, but that's what they would have. They would have a two-week assignment every year. So some might live in the area. Some might come from hundreds of miles away during their two weeks that they're serving there in the temple. And that's, that's who these guys are. The Levites, on the other hand, these guys, their main focus was very much in a supporting role. They would help assist the priest however they needed to, doing different religious uh, temple rituals. But they would also serve as this kind of private security detachment, this temple police um, and so they come, and they've got one pressing question for John the Baptist. Who are you, dude? They come with the question. They want to know. Keyword. They want to know. Who, who are you? And so, verse 20, his response. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, okay, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. 
So they said to him, okay, well then who, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? They, they start off by, of course, asking probably the most important question. Are you Messiah? He says no. So they're thinking, if he's not, maybe he's some other important individual or character associated with the end times. Hence the next question, are, are you Elijah? And they ask that because there's the prophecy from Malachi 3.1 and 4.5. The Jews expected Elijah to return in bodily form just before Messiah returned to establish his earthly kingdom. Even today, Jewish people will leave an empty seat at the table for Elijah when they celebrate Passover. I'm not Elijah. Okay. And then they finally ask, are you the prophet? And this idea came from Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 15, 18, about this prophet who would come, who would speak the word of God in the future. Now, here's what's interesting. What's interesting about this inquiry is ultimately John the Baptist's response, and that is he denies being Elijah. And yet there is a sense in which John was Elijah, because Jesus explained this was the case to his disciples. In Matthew 10, excuse me, Matthew 17, 10 to 13, his disciples asked him about this very topic. And here's what Jesus said. Or excuse me, here's what his disciples said. They said, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He, Jesus, answered them. Matthew 17, verse 11 now. Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him. There's kind of a key word. They didn't know him. But did to him whatever they pleased so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So here's what Jesus is saying. John was not literally Elijah as the Jews expected. Instead, he was this sort of Elijah-like individual that came in the spirit and power of Elijah. But that still begs the question, well then why didn't John the Baptist just say this when he asked about it? As one commentator explains, Jesus confers on John the Baptist his true significance. No man is what he himself thinks he is. He is only what Jesus knows him to be. In other words, it's entirely possible that when John told them that he wasn't Elijah, that he was telling them the truth from his limited vantage point. And that's because John the Baptist may not have fully known or even grasped the total significance of his true position. And if that's true, here's why it matters. And that is because what matters isn't how popular, liked, or well-known you are. What matters isn't how many likes or followers or compliments you get. What matters is if you're known by Jesus. Your significance, your relevancy hinges on nothing other than being known by Jesus and in turn knowing him. That's the only thing that truly matters in this very short life that we've been given. And so, here's the thing about John the Baptist. He's got a, few, he's got a huge following. I mean, these guys come to him. They know he's a big deal. He's very popular. He would be like the person today on social media who's got 30, 40, 50 million followers. He's got all this influence. He's got this huge following. I mean, he could have been the person to sign the record label. He could have been the rock star. And he, he turns it down. 
He turns it down because that's not what he's about. He turns it down because that's not his goal. His goal isn't fame. His goal isn't self-promotion. His goal isn't to make much of himself. And when it comes to humility, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Sometimes there's a misconception about humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. In other words, in his attempt to be the humble servant, John doesn't say, oh yeah, I, I don't have any spiritual gifts. I mean, I don't have a car. I'm only a freshman. Like, I'm single. Or, oh, I'm, I'm married. I mean, no one could use a married person. I'm married with kids. Or, or I'm, I'm in this different stage of life. I'm just not good at anything. He doesn't do or say any of that. But rather, as we'll see, he turns the spotlight on Jesus. He's going to make the focus all about Jesus. And here's the problem for many people today when it comes to humility. And that is, some of you aspire positions that God hasn't called you to. Some of you have aspired for positions, and two positions, for selfish reasons. Some of you only care about being the cat's meow, as they used to say. You want to be the rock star, but you, you could care less about wiping down the tables or taking out the trash when what you really need to do in light of this story is accept the positions that God has called you. Accept the positions that God has destined you for. And, and still others of you, you fit into this, but in a little bit different sort of category. And that is, for others of you, God wants you to be in a more significant position. He wants you to pursue service. He wants you to pursue leadership roles. And for this person, here's what they'll be tempted to do. For this person, they will feign humility in order to flee from responsibility. And this is the person who is so concerned about themselves. They're so concerned about their lifestyle. They're so concerned about their schedule. They pretend to be humble so they don't actually have to follow God's calling to serve him and make much of him. And so this is the sort of person, here's what they'll do. They'll, they'll make these excuses of why they can't pursue service or why they can't pursue leadership roles because of homework. I know, preach it, right? Because of school. Because of interruptions. And they don't want to commit. And they don't want to use their spiritual gifts. In fact, the part of the service they always hate is when I come up here at the beginning and I make announcements, I'm like, listen, you should be plugged into a local church. You should be using your spiritual gifts. You should not be coming just warming a pew once a week. And they're like, oh, just get that over with. I don't want to hear that part. Get the good stuff. And so that person pretends to be humble. They pretend to be humble like John the Baptist, but it's not real humility. It's self-serving. You pretend to be humble so that you don't have to do anything. Some of you, God's given you spiritual gifts. You've been coming to this church for several months and you're still not plugged in. You're still not using your gifts. Some of you, you've been church hopping for like, I don't know, the last three years. And every week it's like, hey, where do you want to go to church? Oh, let's go to that one. The pastor's funny there. Oh, let's go to that one. No, no, that pastor's way too serious there. And it's literally like this menu that you're ordering off of and you've never got connected and you've never got plugged in. 
and you pretend to have humility. Oh, no, I couldn't be, no, God, I couldn't be used. I don't, I don't have anything to offer. And, and it's just phony. That's not humility. That's pride. It's not humility. It's apathy. It's not humility. It's laziness. That's not the way the Baptist does it. It's just selfishness. And so verse 23 says, You want a response? I'll give you a response. I paraphrase. The Baptist says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. And the point of the quotation is that it gives no providence to the Baptist. John the Baptist doesn't view himself as someone who's important. He doesn't view himself as someone who's significant. This is at the heart of humility right now. And that is not thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less and Jesus more. And it's only here in John's gospel that John the Baptist actually quotes this verse from Isaiah himself. Only one of the gospels. And in saying this, John is both answering the delegation's question as to his identity, and then he shifts the focus away from himself onto Jesus. He does it a lot. And so in verse 24, it says, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And there is this, there's this kind of odd parenthetical right here in verse 24. And what makes it odd is that the Sadducees controlled the temple at this time. The, the Sadducees were the majority party in the Sanhedrin. Okay? They were the liberal party. The Pharisees were the very conservative party. This is the Jewish Supreme Court. When I say Sanhedrin, that's their version of their Supreme Court. And so it's odd that the Pharisees sent the delegation. It's odd because, as I said, the liberal party, the Sadducees, they're, they're the ones in power, and it seems rather unlikely that the Sadducees would have sent the delegation comprised of their arch rivals, the Pharisees. Like, this would be like today if the Speaker of the House decided he wanted, like, AOC or Elon Omar to go head up an investigation regarding anything. Like, like, he wouldn't do that. It wouldn't make any sense. It would be quite odd, to say the least. And furthermore, the term Sadducee, it never actually appears in John's Gospel. So here's what's most likely going on in this verse. John is right here. He's the writer, excuse me, of the fourth Gospel. And when he is writing this book, there is some debate as when it was written, but at the earliest, it would have been around 70 AD. If you know what happens then, Jewish history, Roman general Titus, comes and he just destroys the Jews in Jerusalem. He destroys the temple. I mean, he just runs them over and smokes them, at which point the ruling political party, the, the Sadducees, they die off. Thus, any reference to the Sadducees would have meant very little to John's readers at the time. As one commentator noted, to expect John the Evangelist to talk about the Sadducees when none of his readers probably ever heard of them, nor could they read about them in the Old Testament, it, it would probably be asking way too much. And so, verse 25, it says, they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Like, how come? Paraphrase the how come part. John answered them, I baptize with water, but amongst you stands one you do not know told you that was a big key word in this passage. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Here's what's happening. The Jews, 
they baptize people. You're like, like, they baptize people? Yeah, they would baptize people. Everyone knew and understood that. The issue for those doing the investigation was, this guy John the Baptist, he wasn't baptizing people who converted to Judaism. He was baptizing people who had already converted to Judaism. In other words, they were already Jews. And that shocked the religious leaders because the religious leaders viewed themselves and all the other Jews, they were already part of God's kingdom. They were already saved, we might say, right? And so for that reason, they would say, well, we don't, we don't need to baptize anybody. What are you doing? Stop that. Just like today, there's a lot of people who think that they're saved and they're not. And they need to repent. And they need to be baptized. And they need to start following Jesus. Not their version of Jesus, but the biblical Jesus. And so what John is doing in baptizing them is he is helping these people to acknowledge that their sin had separated them from God and that they're no better than the Gentiles, that they're no better than anyone else. And so John's baptism is serving as this public expression of their repentance in preparation for Messiah's coming. And the Jews, they don't like this. They're taking issue with him right now. Yes, he's popular, but it seems that his popularity isn't something that they're going to be able to harness for their own benefit. And that is because of the humility of John the Baptist. John doesn't want to do the record deal. And since he's not anyone of significance to the guys doing the investigation, why should he be stealing the spotlight? And so they straight up tell him, you shouldn't be baptizing people. You don't have the authority to do that. And you have to understand this about the religious leaders. These are the guys, oh man, these guys really value their teachers. The problem is they value their teachers a little bit too much. That's the problem. They value their teachers at the same level of scripture. And that's never good, to be clear. No one in here right now should ever value your teacher, your pastor, more than scripture. That includes me. And so they would say, in essence, you can't do that, John. You can't baptize these people. And if you disagree with us, you're disagreeing with our teachers. And if you disagree with our teachers, you're disagreeing with God. It'd be almost like today, if, if someone disagrees with Dr. Fauci, you're disagreeing with science. Maybe you've heard that, right? You can't disagree with that person. That's, that's, that's them, right? It made them so very arrogant, so very proud, so very self-righteous. They show up to see John. They don't really care about John. They don't care about learning his story. They don't care about hearing his testimony. They don't want to listen. They just want to push their own agenda. And the same thing happens to Jesus. You would think they would say, Jesus, we love learning about the Bible. Jesus, teach us. Jesus, give us a word. They don't. Because herein lies the heart of the Pharisee. And it's this attitude in which we never learn, we only teach, and if you disagree with me, you disagree with God. They're arrogant, they're proud, they're self-righteous. Bottom line is this, it is very hard to be biblical if we aren't relational. It's very hard to be humble if we don't actually care about people. And they don't care about this guy, John. They don't want to hear anything he has to say. They don't care about the truth. None of it. So, John answers them in verse 26. He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who came after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. You've you got to keep in mind that at this time, you're typically using your legs 
your feet to transport yourself. And not only that, but you've got open-toed sandals. Most of the roads are not paved. It's dusty. It's dirty. It's muddy. Thus, washing someone's feet, untying someone's sandal, this is a very gross job. Culturally, this is something that would be the most menial and degrading task. One that even the Jewish teachers were forbidden to demand of their students. And yet, this is exactly the the picture that we see here. This is the picture that captures so well the heart of humility. And here's the obstacle for us today. We, we, We tend to think, we tend to think that the greatest thing we do is ultimately tied up in what we do. But that's, that's not the case. The greatest thing we do isn't what we do. The greatest thing we do in our lives is the one for who we do it for. And, and for that reason, you don't have to do great things. Because anything you do for Jesus is great. When it's done out of faith, when it's done out of love, according to Romans 14.23, here's the bottom line. The path to maturity is paved with humility and service. And so his response to the criticism is essentially this. My baptizing is not about me. It's about Jesus. And he's infinitely superior to me. And so he goes on in verse 29. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is of he whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. John is really, really, really popular. And no one knows who Jesus is right now. Everyone knows who John is. John's the one that's got the 30 million Instagram followers. He's a big deal. And then in verse 29, he he makes this discovery. He makes this announcement. And then he uses this title that's only found in John the Evangelist's writing, The Lamb of God a title that would have been very familiar with his Jewish readers. But here is the contrast of the issue. Israel wanted and sought a Messiah who would be a prophet, who would be a king, who would be a conqueror. And John comes right now and he makes this announcement that God has instead sent to them a lamb. And for the Jewish leaders, they, they had in their minds this, this picture. He's going to look like this. Messiah is going to look like this. And he's going to operate like this. And he's going to play this sort of role. And I realize it's not altogether that different from today. You see, everyone loves the version of Jesus that never steps on anyone's toes. No one takes issue with Jesus so long as he doesn't say anything they find disagreeable. And that's because people want God to be a God of their own choosing. The problem is that's just not who he is. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is epically good news because every one of us is guilty before a righteous and holy God. Every every one of us, we stand condemned before God for our sins, for our disobedience. Every one of us will receive the death penalty for our actions, a fair and just sentence. And so here comes John with this announcement for all to hear. Jesus is here. Jesus has come. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the the world. And yet, for many people, instead of humbling yourself in gratitude that the King has arrived, you harden your hearts with pride and arrogance. 
you take issue because the Bible speaks out against sinful things you've been doing. And you don't want to stop doing those sinful things. So understand this. You cannot know Jesus by making up your own version of him. And if that makes you mad or you take issue with me saying that, I don't really care. Jesus might not be who you want him to be in the current state of your proud heart, but he's exactly who you need him to be. And if you notice in verse 30, He says at the end of verse 30, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Key word is was in verse 30. It's the same word that John has used throughout chapter 1, specifically in the opening verse. In the prologue. Remember the prologue a couple weeks ago? He says in the beginning, was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The point of verse 30 right here is to remind the reader of the preeminence of Christ. This is the thread of humility that is running through the veins of the Baptist. He is preeminent. He is the king. I am not the king. I am not the shot caller. I don't make this up. And then it says this in verse 31. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. There might be a tad bit confusion right now. Why would John the Baptist say that he doesn't fully know him here? Because if you read Matthew chapter 3, verse 14, John doesn't want to baptize Jesus. And the reason seems to be based on that text is that John does in fact know who he is. Which is why in Matthew chapter 3, he tells Jesus, no, 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 I can't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. So here he says he doesn't know him. You catch that? I got it. You probably got it too. So I'm like, what's up with that? Why does he say that? Why does he make these comments that he doesn't understand or know him? And for that reason, it's probably best to understand what he's saying here. It's probably best to understand his comments here is that he did not know that Jesus was the Messiah. Yes, he knew him. He probably grew up with him, right? He's his cousin. But it wasn't until this moment, until the sign that he just observed that he realizes and puts two and two together that he, in fact, is Messiah. But clearly, now he knows And as I said earlier, knowing is one of the major themes in this gospel. I mean, you go all the way back to verse 10. It's like week two. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not. They didn't didn't know him. And and so this investigative team, they, they start off trying to know who John the Baptist is. I mean, that that's the point of the story, right? That's the point why I gave the testimony in verse 19. And his whole testimony is this. Guys, it doesn't matter who I am. We want to know who you are. It doesn't matter who I am. It doesn't matter if you know me. It matters if you know him. Do you know him? 
See, so many people, they spend their lives trying to know the answers to different questions. They do. People want to know the answers. Does that attractive young woman, do you think she'd be interested in me? Is that cute guy, do you, think he'd, do you think he'd go out with me? There's this instinct, right? There's this instinct in all of us to know. That's why we keep reading books. That's why we keep watching TV shows. We want to know what's, what's happening. We want to know how it's going to end. We want to know. And, and the problem is for most people, they don't know. My dad doesn't know. My sister doesn't know. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. See, the goal of our life, here's the goal of our lives, the goal of our life, regardless of what vocation you have, should be this, and that is one harmonious song bathed in humility of which the agenda is not mainly about doing great and glorious things. It's about knowing and making Christ known because anything done for Christ is already a great thing. Oh God, my prayer is that that would be our passion. That we would, Lord, that we would have a spirit and heart of humility. Like the Baptist, listen, it doesn't matter if you know who I am. It matters if you know who Jesus is. Lord, give us that type of desire. Give us that type of passion. And Lord, to remember that anything that we do for you is already a great thing because of who you are. You are already great. You are preeminent. You are glorious. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us, those of us who battle with false humility, those of us, Lord, who battle with pride and selfishness and self-exhortation, Lord, that you would break that, that you would make us like John the Baptist, that you would make us like your son Jesus. We pray this in your name.